This is Tall Boy Radio. Each week, your hosts, Beans, Gaz, and Andy, grab a beer and discuss whatever it is that's on our minds. We try to keep things uncomplicated. The premise for this podcast is as simple as we are. Not only can you listen to us at tallboyradio.com and on every podcast platform, you can also watch the video version on YouTube. Just search for Tall Boy Radio or click on the link on our website. If you have a story and want to feature on the show or just want to get in touch, drop us an email at mail at tallboyradio.com or leave us a comment on social media at Tallboy Radio on Twitter and Facebook and at Tallboy Radio Podcast on Instagram. Or you can leave us a message on the Anchor app, which we can play on the show. Right, the show is about to begin, so go grab yourself a cold one, kick back and enjoy. Welcome back to episode 146 of Tall Boy Radio. We've got a bit of a treat for you this week, but before we get to that, let's get the usual business out of the way and introduce the host, because there's only one of them tonight. I'm afraid there's no Andy again. Gazza? Evening, guys. Good to be back. I missed last week due to some sort of work commitments and so on, so really, really looking forward to this. been looking forward to this pretty much since we, we, we booked our guest. I'm not going to give too much away, but really, really, really looking forward to just chatting to him. And for my first beverage tonight, if you can see, I'm back on the old sort of left, which is 6.6% of absolute pure goodness. And when that goes, I always say if it goes, but when you get, that's a figgy pop, which is, I think, about 7.3% IPA. So looking forward to that. Nice one, nice one, nice one. Well, in 146 episodes of Tall Boy Radio, we've only ever once drank the same beer by accident. And it's still only once. <laughs> <laughs> I'm drinking the Northern Monk. Nice. Death Star Episode 3, which is a Dulce de Leche Imperial Stout at 10.5%. Oh. And it is a beauty. It's as smooth as you like. Speaking of smooth as you like, we're joined by a guest from over the pond. A chap by the name of Vic Ferrari, who you may be familiar with. If you like to read, do you want to tell do you want to say hello and tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, hello, boys, and thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate it. My name is Vic Ferrari. I'm a retired uh, member of the New York City Police Department. I did 20 years with the NYPD. And uh, after I retired, I got into writing a series of books behind the scenes of what goes on. And they're humorous books because it's loaded with interesting criminals and, and colorful characters I worked with during my 20 years in law enforcement. Absolutely, absolutely. I have one of them here in front of me that I ordered, and you can pick yours up from Amazon as well. So I don't think this was your first book, but I think so. I think this was your, was this your first one that you did about the NYPD? So the yeah. Through the Looking Glass, NYPD Through the Looking Glass. Yeah, I've given it a bit of a go. Yeah, really, really enjoyable read. And it's that kind of book that you can pick up and you can dip into, which is just the kind of reading that I do like to enjoy. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your time with the NYPD and, and the sort of departments you found yourself working in? Sure. So I, I'm a Bronx kid born and raised in New York City, grew up in the Bronx, lower middle class family. By the age of five, I, I knew I wanted to be a New York City police officer and later detective. When I was a little boy, my mother used to take me to the movies on Saturday. And around the corner from the police station, there was, I mean, around the corner from the movie theater was the police station. So I used to run up to the police cars and look in the window and look at the hats. Then I used to watch the cops walking in front of the precinct in their uniforms. And every little boy gets fixated on that gun. I'm saying to myself, I want one of those. <laughs> By the, by the age of 10, my friends and I used to sneak into the local post office and steal FBI wanted posters off the wall. So I grabbed a wanted poster for some guy wanted across the country, you know, some guy wanted for a bank robbery in Kansas City. And then we'd be in the local deli and I'd be looking at some poor, you know, telephone repairman getting a sandwich. And me and my friends were like, this could be that fucker right here. <laughs> <laughs> so I always knew what I wanted to do. By 20, I took the exam. By 21, I was in the police academy. Like I said, I worked 20 years there. I worked in, out of 20 years, 15 of which I was in plain clothes. Uh, I worked in a DUI unit. I worked in a plain clothes street crime unit where it's robberies in progress, burglaries in progress, uh, pickpockets. I worked in Manhattan North Narcotics, which was like the circus. I wasn't an undercover per se, but I did make buys occasionally. And my last 10 years, I was a detective in the NYPD's auto crime division. So anything with stolen vehicles, 
chop shops, mafia-owned businesses, exporting stolen vehicles out of the country, changing vehicle identification numbers on stolen cars for resale, identity theft, and that's that's where I spent my last 10 years. Wow. That's a career, really, guys. That, yeah, at least, yeah, I'm just thinking there, I think, wow, like, the, the 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 characters good and bad that you must have you must have come i mean i, I we could probably do a whole host of episodes just on the stories that you've got you've probably got so many stories and you know and but yeah what what a career what an what a career that that is i'm incredibly lucky because i'm one of the rare you know people that knew what i wanted to do early on got the job and it was everything I thought it was going to be and more. Yeah. You know, some people you wish for something and then you're like, oh shit, why did I even get myself involved <laughs> in this? Right. But I, I got into something that it was like a fish to water and I, I was very lucky. I retired young. I did my 20 years in New York. If you do 20 years, you get a pension and you can retire. And you know, after 20, mm-hmm. like I say in one of my books, a 20 year career with the New York city police department is like a merry-go-round. You have your ups, you have your downs, but you got to know when to get off that ride. Because if you yeah. stay on that ride too long, you lose your usefulness, and then Sea Biscuit's going to throw you on your head. <laughs> so there yeah. was nothing. There was nothing else then that you wanted to do in your mind. You were going to be. It was NYPD and nothing else. No, my parents wanted to kill me because my parents wanted me to go to college, and I had I wanted none of it. And when I graduated high school, there was a gap of like two or three years before I could become a policeman. And my parents struggled like they wanted me to become an electrician. My father said, you could be a policeman, but learn a trade that you can fall back on. Because if this doesn't work out, you're going to be 20 something years old and screwed. And it was like that movie, Catch Me If You Can. So I would leave the house every day and get a different job and then come back with another job. I delivered pizza. I unloaded trucks for UPS. Uh, I clean airplanes at the airport, like just these menial jobs. I could go on and on and on. And my father wanted to kill me. But he said, as long as you're working and you're bringing in money, and you can support yourself. I'm fine with it. You can live here. He says, but the moment you stop working, I'm going to kick your ass out of the house. <laughs> That's fair wow. enough, isn't it? Yeah. So, so, so when, when, when you were growing up and you, and you thought NYPD, was there, a, was there a department that you wanted to get specifically into or was it something that you just sort of fell into obviously you mentioned the narcotics and then the the auto crime and stuff was it was the one area that you you wanted to get to that you never quite got to or did you fulfill all of your dreams as such well first and foremost yes it was always the nypd because growing up in new york it was all the police shows about the nypd so that was you know i didn't want to be a policeman somewhere else in my neighborhood, there were more car thieves per capita in my neighborhood probably than anywhere else in the United States. And I worked in a gas station as a kid. And these fucking guys were always rolling in with, with stolen cars, with the broken steering columns or a lock hanging out. So I knew what to look for. I was leaps and bounds. When I hit the street, I was always the guy, even in uniform, getting in car chases and locking up people for stolen cars. So I wanted to go to the auto crime division. But in the NYPD... There is a lot of nepotism. So if your last name is the same as a chief or an inspector, you're going to go wherever you want. I mean, these guys, I mean, they literally do very little street time because their dad is is an upper echelon member of the department. So if they want to go to aviation or mounted or drive around in a boat, they're going to go there with a little experience. The auto crime division at one time was one of the most difficult places to go to. And I remember I went to a training course. I had like three years in, and there was this fat bastard giving the uh, from auto crime, giving uh, give, you know like teaching us our instructor. And I was young and naive and stupid. And he goes, "Does anybody here want to work in the auto crime division?" So like I raised my hand, and he goes, "He goes, uh, officer. He goes, is your father above the rank of captain?" I said, "No, sir." He says, "Put your hand down. You're never going to get that get here." And I said, "Fuck him." I said, "I am going to get in here." Like you know. And, I just kept making stolen car arrests and just kept I kept getting good evaluations and I just did the work because, I mean, my dad was a butcher. I mean, I had no family in the yeah. police department, so I, I, I gravitated to the stolen vehicle industry and, yeah, that I landed where exactly where I wanted to go. Wow. That's, that's, like an, that's an amazing sort of story, isn't it, to, you know, to, to say that, that you, you, you wanted to get somewhere and didn't matter – 
effectively how many hurdles or barriers were put in front of you, you actually got to where you wanted to be. I mean, that, that, that's incredible. Yeah. It's a I lot guess. of luck. I mean, it is hard work, but it was a little luck too. Yeah. So, so when you were looking at that and you were watching the stuff on TV, I, I've got a feeling I know the answer to this question, but how close is being a New York City cop to the stuff that we saw on, you know, NYPD Blue and things like that? Is he close? No, I mean, yes and no. Like, okay, so way back in the good old bad days, like yeah. when I first got hired, it was a lot different than it is now. Now the department is very politically correct. Yes and no. So on television shows, everything gets wrapped up in an hour. The closest television show that gets it right is Law and Order because right. it, it, there's a crime, right? The show always opens up, there's a crime. The detectives are called, and it shows how the detectives narrow out suspects. They bring evidence to the district attorney's office. The district attorney's office tells them, bring us back more. They make the arrest. Then it goes to trial, and then it gets wrapped up in an hour, and they cut a lot of corners. But I would say law and order is the closest thing. But no, like on TV shows and stuff, like if you get involved in a shooting or something, it's like you're not going home and having a beer that night. Like they drag you to the fucking ringer. You know what I mean? It's like so it's totally different in that aspect. Like you're not going around wrecking cars and then they're like, ah, just take a day off and I'll talk to you tomorrow. Like, yeah, bullshit. You know what I mean? You wreck a couple of cars, you know, you're going to be stuck at the station house for the rest of your career. Yeah. yeah what so, one, one of the things that, I, I, I'm sort of desperate to ask is when, when you first, I say, when you first went through the academy and you first I say, got your stripes, was there a moment where you went, what the fuck? What thing you were like, it absolutely, you're like, what is this? All right, so get this. So again, I grew up in the Bronx, right? The Bronx is a pretty large place, but I grew up in the Bronx, lower middle class neighborhood, right? I get out of the police academy, I go to a field training unit in the South Bronx. So you know, you guys are old enough to remember they used to show videos of the Bronx burning and stuff. So by the time they used to call my precinct in that area, Fort Apache, by the time I got there, they were calling it Little House on the Prairie because it was all fucking burned out. <laughs> but, what, but what you had going on was I got hired right in the middle of the crack epidemic. So, yes, like my, I remember my first day out of the police academy, they put me in field training and they dropped me off on a block where there was rows. 30 or 40 six-story abandoned buildings and just said, figure it out, kid. And I'm on foot by myself with a radio and there's fucking crackheads walking by with like shit they stole, like trying to sell it, pimps and hoes. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, like this isn't what I envisioned, man. Like people coming up to me, speaking Spanish, asking me questions. Like, yeah, I had like remedial Spanish in like sixth grade. I don't know what the fuck they're talking about. So it, 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 it I mean, it all came to get because a couple of times early on, I'm like, what the fuck did I get myself involved in? You know what I mean? Like, this is nothing. You know what I mean? Like, the drug dealers would fuck with you on a corner. I tell a story in, in uh, my book, The NYPD's Flying Circus. I had a friend when he was in field training, they put him on a foot post in a high drug prone location. So he's out there by himself and he's running people off the corner, get out of here, don't sell drugs, pushing people, you know, getting off the corner and stuff, keeping the block clean. So he's standing with his back up against the building and he looks at his watch and he goes, okay, it's noon. I'm going to go take my meal hour. He takes that step off the building and he hears something go meow and he has an explosion. Someone threw a cat off the six story building and it almost fucking hit him. The cat exploded all over, right? He's a rookie cop. He panics. He gets on the radio. He calls what's called a 1013, which means officer needs assistance. And I don't know how it is in London or England. You get on that radio and call a 1013, the fucking cavalry's coming, man. It's like something, something you've never seen yeah. before. 50, 60 cops show up, and he's standing there pointing at a dead cat, and the sergeant's like, come here. He goes, do I bother you? And he goes, no. He goes, then why are you bothering me? He goes, call fucking sanitation and clean up this mess and stop bothering me. Like, and he's like, yeah, but the cat. He goes, what the fucking cat? Did it hit you? No. He goes, get over it. <laughs> What a, what a great story that is. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, it's a different world, isn't it? <laughs> Dealing with the kind of people then that you dealt with in the Bronx, the South Bronx, and all over the, I guess, the, the five boroughs, did it leave you Did it leave you with a cynical view of people? You know, I think I was cynical before I got hired. But, um, 
<laughs> like I say in one of my books, I mean, throw in my mother, growing up in the Bronx, throw in my mother in a 20-year career with the New York City Police Department. It's a wonder I talk to anybody. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can. It does. It's, it's a unique job. And if you let it get to you, it will eat you alive. It's almost like being a, a lion tamer. Or, you know, if you let your guard down or you really think about it too much, like people that work in, like, on, on high buildings, you know, like the steeplejacks guys that do construction, it's like if you really start thinking about how crazy this is, I'm guessing it could fuck you up. I'm not, I guess I'm not that much of a deep thinker. So <laughs> luckily for me, I'm able to compartmentalize things because I, it does happen to people where they, they either suffer mental illness or they become very bitter people. And they're just, we call them hair bags in the department. It's like a salty veteran. It's like, yeah, the world sucks. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, what do you got, kid? You know, like they drive around in the same precinct in circles for 20 years and it just burns them out. You can't let yeah. it get to them. Yeah, yeah I, bet. I bet. Yeah, that's a, that's a whole different experience, isn't it, Gaza? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I just can't. I, I mean, obviously, myself and Adam, you know, we, we've got, jobs and professions and but we, we've come across a couple of sort of colorful characters but n nothing even remotely that i can imagine that that, that you you've come across one of the things i wanted to, to ask really and we might get onto your, your books in a second but but was was it something growing up in terms of when you got in at what point did you then start to think actually i might start writing and did you have that in mind when you're in the the NYPD and therefore you were effectively making mental notes or oh, well, that might be a quite a good story to tell or was it just something afterwards that, that you left well no I never had any intention of writing books right. or I mean I, I'm a high I, yeah, I went to high school I never took a creative writing course or a journalism right. course I retired from the NYPD I moved to Florida and I was born so I became an, a police officer again for a small police department in Florida but here's the thing. So I went from working as a detective in America's largest police department to this tiny little department in Florida. And it was almost like having a stroke and having to learn everything all over again. Yeah, like I knew, yeah, he, you know, he breaks the window. I put handcuffs on him, but the paperwork is different. The policies yeah. are different. And down in Florida, it was so different. Like we spent an hour, we spent like a half a day learning how to wrestle alligators. I'm like, what the fuck? Alligators? <laughs> like, I have alligators up in the Bronx. Like, yeah, don't worry. Every police car's got a, a roll of duct tape in the trunk. I'm like, can't we just shoot these fucking things? <laughs> so it was totally different down here. So I did that for like eight months. And I was like, no, thank you. So I resigned. And then I was bored again. And my friends and family were like, you know, you got all these crazy stories. You've got almost a photographic mind. You know, whenever, you know, we're out, there's always some story that bubbles up. You should start writing this stuff down and write a series of books. And I said, I don't know. I was very apprehensive of doing it. It's probably the best thing I ever did short of my NYPD career. And it allows me to live vicariously through myself again. Yeah. Yeah, wow. I can imagine. I can imagine. So if we if we if we look at each of your books, if I give you the title of the book, then do you want to tell us a little bit about them? So we we start off then with with dickheads and debauchery. <laughs> dickheads and debauchery and other ingenious ways to die is my first book. <laughs> yeah. It's got a picture of a fat guy on a ladder drinking a beer, wearing a wife beater, doing something dangerous with electricity. That book is about the ridiculous things people do to shorten their life expectancy, whether it's going to spain to run with the bulls i love it when new yorkers go to spain to run with the bulls i'm like just ride the fucking subway if you want to lose your life it's a lot deeper right listen to the tracks you might catch you might watch a homeless person piss on the third rail and get electrocuted which happens all the time down in the tunnel so it's like this so it, it's just about the ridiculous things people do to shorten their life expectancy wow brilliant and then the, the Grand Theft Auto, I think I can guess what that one's about a little bit. That's, I'm guessing it's about your time in the in the auto department there. Yeah, Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's auto crime division is like, it's about my 10 years involved in auto theft. It's everything you wanted to know about the stolen vehicle industry. Who steals your car? What happens to your car after it gets stolen? A car thief's mindset. And then there's a bunch of interesting cases in there that I worked on, like, I recovered Mike Tyson's stolen motorcycle. 
I worked on an international auto theft ring that was shipping 30 cars a month to China. And then the wow. bad guys involved in that, the thieves, were in the murder for hire business. So while we were on wiretaps, these guys were bragging about whacking this guy and whacking that guy. So when we took down the case, I mean, we locked up all these car thieves and these guys exporting stolen cars to China. But then we solved like 15 homicides. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, we'll get into the book, but in terms of that, then, I mean, were you ever sort of worried about because the, the perception that we have over in England of the NYPD and maybe the LAPD and is it this is going to sound awfully quite bad, but it's sort of almost institutionally corrupt. So were you ever worried about repercussions either A from I say mob bosses or criminals and, and, and were you ever sort of personally targeted or afraid or was there ever a point where you thought actually you know what 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 am I doing because this might affect me personally? Yeah all right so I gotta unpack that because there's a couple of layers to that question. So first and foremost the New York City Police Department has between at any given time between 35,000 and 40,000 members. So we hire in bulk. A small police academy class is 250 people. A large class could be 2,500 people. Wow, so okay. they do their best to weed out the bad apples. But when you hire in bulk, occasionally you're going to get dirtbags. And it's either people of high intelligence that are going to sit back and wait for the right opportunity and the right partner to pull something off. You got morons that just go for it. And then you get people that, for whatever reason, they're financial, something happens to them, and they slide off the deep end. In my book, The NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos, there's a chapter called Crossing Over to the Dark Side. And then there's a whole thing about police corruption. And if there's one thing the NYPD makes perfectly clear, like the day you raise your hand and, you know, swear to uphold the Constitution, if you're going to fuck around and steal or do bad things, we're going to throw you in jail. Like the police academy, it was drummed into our head constantly. They would have guest speakers, cops that got fired, cops that did jail time would come in and, and talk to us about, you know, you fuck around now and you'll be in an upstate New York prison for five years. They had district attorneys who were tasked with prosecuting police corruption come in and give like these, these speeches. Yeah. So. It, they they laid their cards on the table up front. Did I see police corruption occasionally? Uh, when I got hired, you got to remember, I got hired in 1987. We still had, and I hate to paint a whole group of people like this, and I'm not, but we still had a lot of holdovers from the Vietnam War. Yeah. Guys that did a couple of tours in Nam and weren't afraid of fucking anything. And there was some of those guys that were, you know, doing things they shouldn't have done. I worked with a guy who years later wound up transporting drugs for, for a cartel. So, yes, we do have them from time to time. It does yeah. come up. When I was working in organized crime, we used to laugh and we'd say every time we went up on a wiretap and we were listening to some dirtbags conversation, some cop from some department, sometimes ours, would wander onto the playing field, be it they were running a plate for someone like, you know, didn't know why they were running this play, but should have never have done it in the first place. Yeah. Or we would do like just before I retired, we were doing a case on, on a scrap metal processor where the guy was an organized crime figure. And there was a cop transporting stolen cars to this place. And this guy was involved in a lot of shit, uh, hijackings and, and, and home invasion. So, yes, it does happen. Uh -huh. As far as the mafia, which, you know, when I was active, New York City was the hub. Right. Yeah. Because probably the largest of all you had five families in there. Um, yeah, we, we dealt with them all the time. And, you know, we'd rattle their cage. They'd rattle ours. Um, one of the sergeants in auto crime, we were doing a case on um, on a big time organized crime figure. And he knew we were doing a case on him. And he had one of his guys steal our sergeant's street sign. <laughs> And and and, and, met, and and had said something to him about it. So letting him know, I know the block you live on, and I had one yeah. of my guys steal the street sign. So we d we did work a lot of organized crime cases. And the funny thing is, like, we knew some of these guys were capable of doing murder or, or capable of doing serious physical injury to people. And then when we take the case down and we start getting informants, then you find out, yeah, this guy that we've been watching for months 
is a fucking serial killer. You know what I mean? As far as, you know, wow. a lot of people. Wow. That's, do you know what I mean? It's just like, just like you said, just doing a wiretap and you're, you're opening a whole can of worms. It's incredible. It is incredible. Oh, it just, it's like, it, it is. It just keeps, and, and you got to know at one point, like the case with the cars going to China, the only reason we took that case down was because they got greedy and they stole 10 cars in one shot and they didn't sweep the cars for GPS. So instead of letting the cars park somewhere and let them cool off, they took the 10 cars and brought them right into the garage. <laughs> one of the um, tracking devices, like a LoJack, started pinging. And then the precinct cops, who had no idea we were doing a case in this thing, ran in. And then the Chinese would, you know, everybody was scattering like rats on a ship. And we had to round these fuckers up in 24 hours. Wow. Wow. It's just, it, wow. Unbelievable. Yeah. So we, we talked about that. And you mentioned Flying Circus, M- NYPD's Flying Circus. So the next book is obviously the one that I have here, which is the, oh, no, it's not. Sorry. I've got, so NYPD Law and Order. So that was that was the next book that I had in my list. So tell us a little bit about that one. NYPD Law and Disorder, Disorder is sorry. is loaded with funny things that went de- went wrong in my NYPD career. So in the opening chapter, there's, uh, it's called uh, Embarrassing Moments. And like I say, every author likes to portray themselves as how smart they are. And they always save the day in the nick of time. They got the witty comeback. I got a story in there. Me and my partner driving around the Bronx. We spot these three guys in the back seat of a gypsy cab. A gypsy cab is usually just a four-door car with bogus plates on it, and some clown goes around picking up fares. It's the Bronx. And we pull over this gypsy cab. There's four guys in the back seat. There's three guys in the back seat with four kilos of coke. So I lock these guys up. I go into the precinct, and it's like I won the Stanley Cup. I'm walking around with the kilos. Everybody's congratulating me, high-fiving me. You're going to narcotics. The drugs go down to the lab. The bad guys go down to Manhattan, uh, Bronx Central booking. I got to go down to court that night to speak with a district attorney. So across the street from the Bronx district attorney's office is this um, newly opened food court. So I go in there. I order some Italian food. I'm just I'm in my uniform. I'm like reflecting. My chest is all puffed out. This is great. And all of a sudden, I got to take a dump like nobody's business. (laughs) And I don't want to use the bathroom across the street in the courthouse because it's a fucking dungeon and there's never toilet paper in there. So I said, oh, wow, the food court, brand new bathroom. It's probably going to be like a cathedral in there, right? I go in. Thing is antiseptically clean. It's like no one's taking a dump in here, right? I'm like, great. I go into the stall. I take off my gun belt. I hang it on the hook, right? I drop my pants. I sit on the bowl. I'm getting ready for liftoff. And I hear the front door kick into the bathroom and I hear like three, four teenagers come rushing in. So I'm like, shit, they're hitting the hand dryers. They're hitting the sinks. They're making all sorts of noise in there. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a cop, but I got my pants down and my knees taking <laughs> stuff. I'm quite vulnerable, right? <laughs> Gets eerily quiet. I'm like, did they notice a pair of legs under here? Did they leave? I'm like, I better finish up and get the fuck out of here, right? Just as I'm finishing up, right, something tells me to look up. One of the teenagers went into the next stall, got on top of the toilet. He's looking over at me now. I look up. He's staring right at me, and he's hanging over the stall wall, and he's trying to grab my gun belt. I said, wow. So I jump up with my left hand, and I try to pull my pants up. With my right hand, I grab him around the neck, and I pull him. But when I pulled him, I pull him closer to my gun belt, and this little motherfucker grabs my gun belt. So I'm like, shit. With my left hand now, I let go of my pants, and it's a hockey fight. Because I got him around the neck, and I'm just punching him. Let go of the gun belt. Let go of the gun belt. While this is going on, his friends run into the next door, and they grab his legs. So now it's fucking tug of war with this kid in my gun belt. <laughs> Finally, he lets go, and the gun belt hits the floor. So... I, I let go of him, and he goes flying over the wall, and it bends. You know, like, those partitions, they ain't worth their shit. They're aluminum, so the fucking thing bends, right? I grab my gun belt. I pull up my pants. I snap it on. I go running out into the food court, and they're gone. And in the book, I say to myself, what was I supposed to do at this point? Get on my radio and call the fucking police? <laughs> I would have been the laughing stock of the Bronx had I done that. It's like sometimes you just got to eat shit and let it go. And I kept that story to myself for 30 something years until I wrote NYPD Lord Disorder. 
dude. I tell you oh, what, that's that's that, that, that is a good story. And if the, if that doesn't if that doesn't encourage somebody out there to go on Amazon and buy some of these books, then nothing will. I've just I've just got visions of literally I used to like a hockey fight, you know, and they just they're just trying to grab a piece of shirt and they're just throwing big haymakers at each exactly. other. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I'm a righty. So I was at a disadvantage because I had him with my right, and I and I really wasn't like stinging him. You know what I mean? Brilliant. Yeah. So, NYPD then through the through the through the looking glass. Tell us a little bit about this one. Well, all my books are just loaded. They're great travel books, right? So all my books you can just pick up. There's no beginning, middle, end. There's a chapter with a theme, and then boom, I write in three or four short stories. So. NYPD through the looking glass. There's a lot of funny stories in there. What do you want to hear? You want to hear Hansel? I'll tell you Hansel and Gretel. So it's the early 90s. Me and my friends, a young cop in my early 20s, we're going to bars. And there's this cop who works in another precinct who who works with a guy that I know. And he's an amateur magician. So we're at the bar talking to the ladies, trying to get phone numbers. This fucking guy comes over. He's pulling flowers out of his fucking sleeve. He's pulling coins behind the ears. He's cock blocking us with magic. So <laughs> I go to his partner. And I go, listen, get him the fuck out of here. And he goes, he goes, Vic, I'm telling you, if this guy took his police career as serious as making balloon animals in the car, he goes, he'd be the greatest crime fighter of them all. A couple of months later, it's on a midnight, and the magician and my old partner get called out to a basement apartment. Six-story building. They go into the basement. There's two doors. It's a 911 call, and it just says calls for help, and it doesn't say which apartment. So they're standing there. They go to door number one. They bang on the door. Nobody answers. So my old partner, we used to call him Cancer because he killed more people than Cancer, but that's another story. He goes, Cancer goes to bang on the second door, and the magician says, what are you doing? He goes, it's late. Our radios are on. We made all this noise. This is bullshit. Let's go. And my old partner goes, no, I'm going to knock on the door. He goes, come on, I'll buy a cup of coffee because the magician was lazy. So they leave. What they didn't know is behind door number two, the superintendent of the building lived there and he was selling coke out of his apartment. So he got addicted to coke and he stopped paying his wholesaler. Well, in the drug world, when you don't pay your wholesale, they don't send friendly reminders or cancel your cable. They're going to kill him. So the super was well aware of this and he wasn't answering his door. So to get the guy out of his apartment, they did an old gypsy trick. They knock, they bring an attractive female with them. They knock on the door and they put the attractive female's face in front of the people. So he gets wood. He's like, oh, great. He opens the door and these two Yugoslavian guys push their way in and they're pistol whipping him. Where's the money? Where's the drugs? He don't got the answer. So they shoot him in the head. They roll him up in a carpet. They take him out of door number two and they throw him in the fucking furnace of the building. (laughs) So while he's going up like a Puerto Rican fire log, they go back into the apartment and they're ransacking it for drugs and money. And that's when the magician and my old partner are outside. So now my old partner is going to knock on that fucking door and you got two armed men and a female, right? So the two Albanian guys tell the female who's in on it too. They go, listen, if those fucking cops knock on the door, let them in. Just start screaming in Yugoslavian and point through the kitchen. Lead them down the hallway, and when you get past the threshold of this uh, bedroom, throw yourself on the floor. We'll come out. We'll shoot the cops in the head. We'll throw them in the furnace, and we'll get the fuck out of here. So they're going to go for the trifecta. Wow. So what winds up happening is the magician stopped my old partner from fucking knocking on the door. So about two weeks later, a week later, the superintendent of the building He's missing. His family starts asking questions. They go to the detective. The detectives get involved, and they see that there's a 911 call to that apartment a week or two before. So they bring in my old partner and the magician, and they go, did you notice anything strange or anything? And my partner says, no. He goes, I knocked on this door, but I didn't knock on that door. He goes, but the funny thing is, when we were leaving, there was a car outside parked on a fire hydrant, and I gave it a ticket. That was the getaway car. So that car belonged to the female. The detectives brought the female in. She starts giving up everything, trying to, of course, minimize her involvement in it. Yeah. And they locked up the two hitmen. So what they had to go back to the building. It was like February. So they had to go back to the building and shut the fucking heat off for like two days. So that furnace would cool enough so they could get the guy's skull and bones out of there. So that's wow. a story called Last Night a Magician Saved My Life. <laughs> <laughs> 
Holy, ah, dude. Wow. Can you, like, literally just a, I say a chance turn of fate, just a, a decision either that way or that way. You know, if they knock on that door and they go in, hey, who knows? Oh, that's what saved my life on 9-11. I was, I was supposed to be in court blocks from the World Trade Center. I had locked some guy up who was going to be a snitch. We were going to pull him out. Of, he, we, I locked him up for a couple of stolen cars. He was going to give up some information. We were going to use him as a confidential informant. And my sergeant was late, running late. The only reason I wasn't down to court was my sergeant was running late. Otherwise, I would have been smack in the middle of it. Who knows? Wow. Not bad thinking about, is it? Not anything bad thinking no. about. No. Wow. I, I was going to ask about 9-11. I was going to ask whether or not you were sort of there or what, what was the... You know what? What was your sort of input, or what? What was the sense of a the department, b the city, as such when that happened? And I don't, don't want to go down a dark route. I just, you know, were you there? Were you involved? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I was. I was so. You know, I told. I was up in the Bronx, and the planes hit. They told us to get into uniform, and by one one thirty, I was down there walking around, and it was wild. So, the closer you got to ground zero because of, you know, when the buildings came down, it let go with this plume of like volcanic ash. So the closer yeah. you got to ground zero, it was like a haze, like a, a twilight haze because the sunlight really was, you know, going through the particles. It, it was weird. It's like a nuclear holocaust. And uh, everything, everything on the ground was covered in this white dust. And the one thing that I'll never forget was as we were coming down, I think it was Broadway, I saw thousands, not hundreds, thousands of pairs of women's shoes because you've got all these women that worked in, in the financial district, Wall Street, and some even worked in, in the Twin Towers. When they were running to get out of there, they just took their shoes off and threw them yeah. and ran. So I'll never wow. forget that, just seeing all those shoes. And uh, I was down there from about 1.30 in the afternoon till about 5 o'clock in the morning. And uh, they told us, well, we're coming back tomorrow, so go home, run your clothes through a washing machine, and be back at 5.30. And I did that for about a week. Then they pulled us out, and I worked in the auto crime division. So then when they started taking um, the debris out to the um, – they have a, a, an abandoned landfill that they reopened. So while they were bringing the debris out there, they had us out there, and they had pulled up hundreds of vehicles that were crushed, police cars, fire trucks, personal vehicles. They had us down there. You know, cutting them open to make sure no one had died in there. Wow, that's, that's, that's oh yeah, that's and I guess you know when we talked earlier then about like you you know maybe that could make you a cynical person. I guess some of the things you saw that day probably did did it restore some. You know, obviously not the original act, but some some of the things that we saw sort of restored our faith in in humanity. Well, by the time that happened, I was already with the New York City Police Department 14, 15, uh, 13 or 14 years. I had seen a lot. I mean, I had walked into a couple of grisly homicide scenes. I had seen quite a bit. And you learn to compartmentalize things. So it's one of those things where you say to yourself, oh, shit, this is really bad. But I can't go to pieces. I got a job to do. And I'll, I'll, I'll just fight through this and I'll get through it. And... You know, I don't suffer from nightmares from it. I mean, yeah, sure, it bothers me if a documentary comes on and stuff, but I don't particularly watch them because I was there. It's the same as, yeah. like, me watching police shows now. It's like, I kind of know the end, and I know how it's going to turn out. Yeah. So, I mean, there, it did restore my faith in humanity just the way the city came together. Yeah. 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 And how, how long then, how long after all that happened did New York start to feel like New York again? It took a while. It, it took a while because there was, um, you know, for the first couple of days, I mean, so all the planes were grounded, right? So you had no air, tra air traffic going on, and we were just doing like 15, 16-hour shifts down there. So we were kind of in a bubble. But, you know, once they started opening things up, it was um, people were nicer to each other. I mean, and that says a lot for New York. Like, you know, <laughs> you're crossing the street, a cab driver's like, no, no, go ahead. Whereas normally you're risking getting your leg blown off. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it's the city de definitely came together for a while. And then it just I, went back to being New York. <laughs> <laughs> but we're back to it. I, I, I was going to ask, in terms of, I mean, just, just after 9-11, did, did the crime stop? So were the criminals a bit like, holy shit, what just happened? Or, or, or 
because we, we got the sense that affected the whole city just stopped. And obviously we weren't there, we weren't part of it. But, you know, over here, we, we just got the, literally, like almost like the, the whole city was just, in morning went to sleep, wasn't itself. That that was the sort of story that, that we got over here. So I'm just curious, almost with the criminals a bit like, like what the fuck just happened sort of thing? Yes. Or were you just literally like, did they just think, ah, I can take advantage now and, and, and was it almost, almost as bad sort of thing? Well, you, you got to remember, like I said, New York City's got between 30 and 40,000 members. Yeah. So even if we sent 5,000 cops, 10,000 cops down there, we could still run the city without a problem. Crime was down. It's funny you should say that because everybody noticed it. I'll yeah. tell you a wild story. Um, you know, I'm a detective. A guy in my office was doing a joint case with um, the Drug Enforcement Agency, right? So I went with him to DEA headquarters in Manhattan, and uh, he had to pick up some paperwork and talk to these agents. I had nothing to do with this case, but I just was along for the ride. And we were in their command center, and it was like something you'd see in like a James Bond movie. It was this really large, tremendous conference center, and there were 50, 100 cubicles of people monitoring wiretaps. So you had people sitting in cubicles with laptops, with recording devices, and from calls all over the world, you know what I mean? You know, you've got drug traffickers talk from, you know, Istanbul, you know, talking about bringing hashish into the United States. You've got Colombians. So it was just like the wildest thing I had ever seen with all these phones and different wiretaps and stuff. And uh, I, I just was taking it in, you know, I was amazed. And I was talking to the uh, DEA agents and they were telling me, they said, when 9-11 happened, we locked down the ports, air travel. It, the price of drugs skyrocketed because yeah. no one could get anything into the country. So whoever was holding stuff was at a tremendous advantage. And, yeah. and he was explaining to me like that a lot of people, you know, in different countries were getting whacked because they couldn't get their product in. So if I, I'm a drug trafficker and, I, and, I'm, and you're a distributor and I'm buying my drugs for you on consignment, which means I don't give you money until I, you know, a certain time and I take, you know, a couple of hundred kilos off of you and you're like, where's the money? And I, well, it's going to take me a while because I, I can't get my product into the United States. They're going to lob your head off and take your stuff back. So <laughs> it, it, it did definitely 9-11 not only reduce crime, but, you know, from what those agents were telling me, like the price of drugs skyrocketed and it caused a lot of problems in the drug world. Wow. Yeah. Yes. Just, just things you don't even think about, isn't it? Yeah. It's crazy. It's like, just, just well, I'll, tell you I'll, I'll tell you a wild story. For, for, okay. So, again, I wasn't involved in this case, but um, there was some, so the case, the, the reason the guy in my office was involved in it was it was a drug case, but the bad guys were also stealing cars and changing the VIN numbers. You would think that they would have enough on their hands with fucking moving multi-kilos. I mean, if the DEA is involved, you're talking 50, 60, 100, 200 kilos, right? So these guys, what they were doing is, they were, do you know what cloning is? Like cloning yeah. cars? Yeah. So I'm in New York. I tell my cousin in San Diego, California, to take a picture of a VIN number on a brand new Mercedes. He takes that picture, and I come up with the paperwork for that car, and I clone it. I make VIN plates and VIN stickers. I go steal that same car in the United States, uh, in New York, and I swap it. So you got two cars. One is masking a stolen vehicle here. That's why my, my buddy was involved in it. Anyway, they had an informant that it was a Venezuelan national, and he was providing them information with stolen cars and drugs, multi-kilos. While they're doing this case, their informant turns up on yet another wiretap. So, yeah, he's helping them, but he's wheeling and dealing Right. So they're going to they're going to kick him in the balls when they're done with him. Right. So he vanishes. So now they're like, shit, did he get whacked or did he know that we knew he's playing both sides against the middle and he's going to go to jail? And he vanished and they were looking for this guy all over the place. So with the New York City Police Department at any given time, no matter where you work, they can throw you in uniform to work Times Square at New Year's Eve parades, demonstrations, fucking riots. So this guy went missing. We forgot all about him. Months go by. 
and they've got us in uniform in front of the United Nations checking vehicles before they go in. Well, who's sitting in the back seat of a car with Venezuelan diplomats? This fucking informant. So wow, no way. Members of the Venezuelan government. And we're like, what the fuck? And he's looking at us, and we're looking at him, and we're like, what the fuck? Like, he's like, he couldn't believe why we're in uniform, <coughs> detectives in front of the UN, and we can't believe he's hanging out with the, you know what I mean? <laughs> Holy hell. Jesus. Guys, the guys that are in, guys that are in your book, obviously, you read your book, and, and you, you talk about various people. Are they, and you talk about like partners or ex partners or stories or this and that, are, are they real or, or have you embellished various aspects of them? Or literally, if, if one of your ex partners or sort of was to read the book, would they go, Oh my God, that's me. You know, or, yeah. Oh, I get phone calls all the time. Like, you motherfucker. You know, <laughs> I changed. Listen, when I got into writing these books, what I said was, I don't want to get anybody divorced or in trouble. Yeah. So I changed the names, the date, the ranks, the locations. Um, do I embellish? Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes I got to pull a character who was a pain in the ass from something else and inject him in, the, in, in a story. But I mean, yeah. these are all actual events like NYPD through the looking glass. There was a guy <laughs> wasn't the brightest of, of people. And it, there's one way to get in trouble in New York city police department is if you lose your gun shield or police ID, if you lose any of those things, you're going to lose 30 vacation days and they're going to put you in year probation. So everyone's paranoid about losing those three things. So this particular cop wasn't too bright. He lived in a shitty neighborhood. He wanted to go out drinking one night. So he left his gun in the place he didn't think anybody would look, his oven. <laughs> Goes out. Four hours, nine beers later, comes back to his apartment, a little hungry. Oh, he no. He's to make some frozen pizzas, sits on the TV, sits on, the, uh, on his couch, starts channel surfing, and the fucking gun starts going off because the bullet, <laughs> he got gunpowder and bullets. So the fucking gun starts shooting at him through the kitchen. So he's got to climb out of his fucking house on his hands and knees and call 911 on himself. They had to send our emergency service in there. And, you know, when they opened it, he needed a new oven, new gun, and lost 30 vacation days and got put on a year probation. <laughs> no, um, no way. I, I can just imagine them sitting there. What the Oh, you shooting at me, you know, just like, Jesus. I think by the second one, I think it was a five shot, a five shot 38 chief. So probably by the second one, like the first one, you, you're in shock. The second one is yeah. like, I know what I did and it's time to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> yeah. Funnily enough, though, that, that, that explains a lot. My cousin is, well, he was over here in February. He is, he's a police officer in San Antonio and he had with him his badge. Now he would show it to me but he would not let me touch it. And that's why, because I do lose things a lot. And that explains now is why he wouldn't let me anywhere near it. <laughs> oh, I'll tell you a funny story about that, too, that just made me think of it. And when you get promoted in the NYPD, right, it's not like TV. So we promote in bulk. So you'll get the notification you're getting promoted to sergeant, detective. They promote like 200 people in one shot, and you're in a room with someone getting promoted to inspector and somebody. So... So what they do is you got to report to one police plaza at like seven o'clock in the morning in your dress uniform with the white gloves. And then you've got some douchebag from the from the ceremonial unit who never leaves except for parades and, <laughs> and parades and, and celebrations. He comes through with a fine tooth comb. You need a shave. You need a new belt. You need new shoes. Come back in two hours or you're not getting promoted. After you come back, you got these. There's like a law. No, People wouldn't believe this goes on. There's a long leaf table with boxes, right? And you go before you get promoted, you hand them your old shield. So I got a police shield, right? I'm getting promoted to detective. I'm going to get a different shield, a different number. It looks totally different, right? You hand some douchebag your shield, right? They have these special molds to make sure it fits and weighs just right. Because what guys do is they buy duplicates that look real and they wear those in case they lose the fucking duplicate <laughs> get the other one, right? So, so, wait, it gets better. So they take your shield, right? They put it in this bowl. If it don't fit, they call the supervisor. They pull you off the line and you're not getting promoted, right? If your shield fits, they go, okay, great. 
and they throw the fucking thing over their shoulder in a box. And I'm like, <laughs> shit, I wore this fucking thing for 10 years. Show it a little respect, man. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Man, I tell you what. This is what this is why you need to read these stories, isn't it? This is why you need somebody to share these stories because I don't think oh, yeah. you necessarily believe it unless you've experienced it. So you want to you want to hear a good story about the drug testing policy? Yeah. <laughs> you guys, I'll have you guys on the fucking floor. <laughs> to death. So this is the old days. Nowadays they test you for drugs by pulling your hair out of your head. In the old days you had to piss in a cup, right? So. <laughs> I get called down before I got hired, be in a suit and tie, go to the health service division for your drug test, right? So I go down. I don't know what to expect, right? I'm there with 100 men and women. They separate the sexes. The female go one way, we go the other way, right? Ten at a time, go into the men's room. They hand you two cups, two little plastic cups, right? You go in a ten at a time, and there's ten urinals, right? So you stand up, you step up to the plate, right? And then a supervisor, ten supervisors walk in. And, like, I know you guys don't, you guys probably aren't in American football, but they're, they're like right over your shoulder, like they're going to block a kick. Like, <laughs> you got a supervisor right over your shoulder, like on his tippy toes, right? And then I looked up, above my head is a mirror at a 45 degree angle. So if he can't see over my shoulder, he can look at the mirror and look at my cock pissing, <laughs> right? So the reason they do that is they've caught people going in with prosthetic penises. <laughs> Um, fucking um, guys go in with them. Um, they've they've caught guys with like a French's mustard bottle, plastic <laughs> underneath their taped under their armpit with like a tube coming out of, coming out of their zipper that they can like squeeze it to make the urine come out. <laughs> so, full disclosure, man, I don't like pissing in front of people. So I'm standing there and I'm pushing, pushing, and I can't fill this fucking thing up. And I'm watching people coming and going with their fucking cups of gold, and I'm like. I'm saying to myself, this guy's going to think I'm a drug addict because I can't pee, right? <laughs> and he's like, come on, kid, hurry up. I'm pushing and pushing so hard, I let go with a fart right into his crotch, right? <laughs> so like, fucking hurry up. So I'm like, boss, I'm sorry. So <clears throat> he pulled me off and they filled me up with coffee. And then finally I was able to piss. But there's so many stories about that. There was a female cop. There's only one NYPD member in the history of the department that failed the drug test and kept her job. She tested positive for cocaine. And when they went to fire her, she goes, time out. I don't do drugs. I don't do cocaine. My boyfriend's a cokehead. So like, oh, oh says, well, no. He likes blowjobs. <laughs> I swallowed. No, I'm serious. And she said that during fellatio, she swallowed a couple of loads, and that's why she tested positive for cocaine, and she kept a job. Are you kidding? Oh, no. oh man. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. What a yeah. defense that is. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're going to believe her, though, aren't you? You're not going to say that stuff. Of, I don't know, would you? I don't know. <laughs> if, if you think it's going to save you your job, probably, yeah. Well, I look at it this way. You guys want interesting content, so I'll give you interesting Yeah, we got it. <laughs> yeah, oh, right. we got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, don't you worry about that. What? <laughs> well, I was going to take him back to his last book. We covered five of his books. He's still got the sixth one, which is, again, has got a very, very interesting title, which is Confessions of a Catholic High School. Do you want to tell us about that one, then? Yeah, Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate, as you can see on the cover, there's a priest chasing a kid in a Catholic high school book uh, <laughs> uniform out of a confession booth. That really happened to me. No, I wasn't molested or anything, but I was a little wise-ass kid, and my parents were like, you're not going to public school for high school because you're a clown already. You'll be a bigger clown if you, go, if, you go to Catholic, if you don't go to Catholic high school. So the best thing that I'm, we weren't even – we didn't go to Mass – but well, we were Catholic, and my parents thought that was the best thing for me, and it was because I definitely needed structure. I was a little smartass, and it's just it's loaded with funny stories about growing up in the Bronx and things that happened to me. There's a story in there early on. My dad's a butcher, and he works in a wholesale meat place, which was owned by the mafia. Now I don't know this. I'm 13 years old, so on Sundays, Sundays I would go into work with him and make chopped meat and sausage and shit. And um, one day he tells me, do me a favor. He goes, go to the second floor. And he sent me on an errand to get something. So as I'm going, it was, I'll never forget this. I'm going up concrete stairs 
and a body is bouncing down the stairs and I'm hearing, help me, help me. And this guy, he almost fucking hit me, comes rolling past me. And then like, he's laying at the bottom of the stairs and he's like all broken up. Like he's got Parkinson's and these two big Italian guys like Carmine and Anthony are coming down the stairs laughing. Right. So I'm like, <laughs> what the fuck the guy's all broken up. He's like, help me, help me. And the two guys come, the two Italian guy goes, Vic, don't worry about him. He's an old friend of ours. Right. They pick the guy up drag him outside and throw him in the street like a bag of garbage, right? Oh, and his mouth was all blue, but I'll get to that. So I go to my father who's cutting meat and I go, dad, Anthony and Carmine just threw a guy down a fucking flight of stairs. And he goes, don't worry about that. He goes, just keep working. I said, all right. So on the way home from work, we're in the car. And I'm like, dad, what happened? And he goes, well, he goes, some people never learn. I go, what do you mean? He goes, that guy's a shoplifter. They caught him stealing before they kicked his ass they told him never to come back he came back they caught him with a slab of ribs down his pants so they brought him up to the second floor they beat his ass they put his hands in a vice and broke him and then he started screaming he was thirsty wanted a drink of water so they poured a can of blue paint down his throat and threw him down the stairs my father goes well Today's your last day of work. And I go, why? He goes, you're 13, 14 now, whatever I was. He goes, I can't have you coming in here. You're starting to realize what's going on here. He goes, I have to work here. He says, you know, I, I, you know, I need a job. He goes, you don't, I don't want you around these people. And that was the last day I ever worked there. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. What a story that is. Yeah. So, so I see you've written these six books. Is, is there a seventh in the pipeline anytime soon? Yeah, as we speak, I don't have a title for it. That's what I always struggle with. I'm writing another NYPD-themed book with short stories about the ridiculous things that happened to me in my career. I say 20 years, you must have had you must have, well, it's clear you've experienced a lot, to be honest. Uh, you know what's funny? Like, my friends will call me up. They'll read one of my books and like, you should have wrote about this guy. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, you know what? Fucking A right. I should write about this <laughs> <laughs> I've got so many friends that, I mean, night, I would think, I don't know anybody that's still active in the NYPD. They're all gone now, retired. So, but I mean, there's still guys call me up all the time, reminding me of stuff. Oh, wow. Wow. So, so if you, obviously, you, you know, you've written six books, that's pretty prolific. What would be, what would be your one piece of advice to somebody who wants to sit down and get their book out there? Yeah. So if you're a first time writer, don't write in chronological order. You know what your book's going to be about. You know what it's themed. Pick something that's interesting and it'll be enjoyable for you and start with that story first. You can always come around and, you know, the beginning of the book, you know, but pick something because if you start with a beginning and you're like, um, how am I going to get there? Blah, 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 blah. It's going to paralyze you and you're not going to go yeah. forward. You'll give up on the project. Start writing about that enjoyable thing. And when you hit writer's block or can't think of something else, go to another story. And, and another thing that I often do is if I have writer's block writing a story, and that's what these podcasts are great, I feel talking about it opens things up that I can write it. So I can write it. And it's like, it doesn't sound right. I, and I, I read my stories out loud. I got a 120-pound Irish wolfhound roaming around here somewhere. And one of the last things I do before I send my book to an editor is I read it out loud because sometimes it, it sounds good just when I write it. But when I say it out loud, it's like, no, that, 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 that makes no sense whatsoever. So those yeah. would be don't write in chronological order. And then when you're ready to send it off to a, an editor, read it out loud. Yeah, that's good advice. That's good well, advice. I, I just want to share something with you guys because you guys are from England, right? Yeah. Yeah. I love the English. It's, it's in my book, uh, Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. Monty Python, so I'm 55, yeah. right? I know I'm well aware Monty Python went off the air in like 1972 or something. But by the time the BBC started showing up in the United States, it was like the late 70s, early 80s. So here I am like a teenage boy, like 12, 13, and we fucking couldn't get enough of them, right? So BBC America would come on Channel 13, PBS, which they're always having fucking fundraisers and want to give you a tote bag. But at, at 10 o'clock at night on a Sunday was Monty Python's Flying Circus, right? Brilliant. So I'm supposed to be in bed. So what me and my brother would do is we had a little black and white portable television set in our room, which wasn't supposed to be on. So on Sunday nights, 
what we would do is we would put towels on the bottom of, we would shut the door and put towels so the light couldn't escape that my parents, and I would hear my father, you two fucking idiots had better not be listening to those Englishmen up there. Because <laughs> we couldn't get enough of it. I mean, oh God, faulty towers and, and, and yeah. Father Ted. I, I just I yeah. love English comedy. I think English actors are absolutely the best. Big Gary Oldman fan. Gary Oldman's in fucking movies. You don't even know he's in the movie. You know, it's like, yeah. Yeah. wait, that, that, that's him? You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Anthony Hopkins and I mean I could go on and on and on but I, I think I think the one thing about your people is when you guys decide to do something you do it right well hopefully that's what we do with this podcast <laughs> yeah we, we try <laughs> yeah yeah hopefully 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 wow so just then just 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 before we go we see we try and keep things round about the hour, hour mile but I do have to ask you so one of you know I love I love American uh, true crime stories. One of my favorite guys on TV over here is a guy called Joe Kender from Homicide Hunter. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know that guy, yeah, yeah. So wh- one of the things that always bugs him that he always says is that the, there are cases that are left with him that still bug him to this day, and those are the ones he didn't solve. Do you have any of those cases that you would share in your stories or not? You know, that's not the first time someone's asked me that in my career. I, I don't really have any of those. You know who you should talk to? My old partner was a homicide detective for 20 years. Wow. Actually, he was on a Netflix series called The Times Square Killer. He okay. actually, uh, he wasn't involved in that case, but he narrates it. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, wow. guy, and I'll see if I could set that up for you. Yeah. Um, I don't because I worked in organized crime cases, so we pretty much knew who we were going after. <laughs> and, but I, I don't, unfortunately. Oh, well, well, that's probably for the best, I guess. That's probably for the best. So go on then, yeah. just before we finish off then, final question. What was the best part of the job? And what was the worst part of the job? The worst part of the job, and like I said, is the NYPD always pulls you in. They never, you could be doing God's work. You could be chasing Osama bin Laden and Pablo Escobar. And, and they're within your grasp. If tomorrow is December 31st, guess what? You're going in a uniform and you're standing out there with all those other douchebags <laughs> bringing in the new year in Times Square. Like, they will throw you. You could be working on the most sensitive case. Too bad, pal. You're working the Thanksgiving Day Parade. Oh, there's a riot. Hats and bats. That's what we call it, hats and bats, like the helmets and nightsticks. You're flying out to Brooklyn, you know, to quell this and that. So... To me, that was the worst because you'd be walking, you'd have an arrest. You've been working 15 hours. You come through the door to sign out at 10 o'clock at night. And here it is. There's a notification sitting on your desk. You got to be up bright and early in Coney Island at the other end of the city. Um, The best, I just worked with so many interesting and sharp individuals. I've met so many. There's There's a chapter in one of my books called Rubbing Elbows about all the famous people I got to meet. Oh, God. I mean, it goes on and on and on. I, I mean, I spent the day with Benjamin Netanyahu with his um, guys from the Shin Bet, which were like commandos in suits. That was wild. I met Columbo, the guy, the actor, Peter Falk, worked at the St. Patrick's Day Parade, and he denied who he was. He saw me pointing at him, and I'm telling we're in uniform. It's the fucking St. Patrick's Day Parade. People are going by, and I'm, I'm like, that's Columbo, Peter Falk. And my partner goes, it is, right? So when traffic stopped, he's crossing the street. And I'm like, how you doing, Mr. Falk? And he goes, ah, sorry. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, that's him. Fucking <laughs> grab him. And we moved him off his car. car. He, he got a little pissed, but then he talked to us for a while. But I met so many famous people. You know what I mean? Like in Manhattan, you just bump into them. Yeah. Yeah. I can, wow. well, I can imagine. Have you got any final questions, Gaza, before we go? Probably loads, but and and hopefully you know yes. we we can have you on again, Vic, because I've got so many. Anytime. Just anytime, sort of interdepartment stuff, and 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 I was really interested in, and it is a conversation for for another podcast. But the relationship between the NYPD and then CIA, FBI, because we always get this like, oh my god, there's like a turf war going on, and it's who's it, and and I'm really curious as to is that. Does that actually happen? Do, is it real life, or is it just hammed up for for film and all that? So, it, like, there's so many questions I could ask. Like, genuinely, so many questions I could ask. But you know, we, we're at like I don't know, just over an hour mark already. So, I might have to part with that until the next time you come on, Vic, because like, 
I've got so many questions. It's incredible. Listen, if you want to ask, ask, or you want to set this up for another time, it doesn't matter to me. We we'll, we'll definitely do it another time. What do you think, Gaza? Yeah. Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. We need to do another. We need to, my, my my daughter is. She loves true crime. She, she loves serial killers. She wants to be. She wants to be a detective. She wants to go either work in sort of um, MI five or MI six. She did say, "I want to go and work for the FBI," and I went, "Well, you need to be an American citizen for that, so that might not work out." But you know, we'll, we'll wait and see. But there's just so many. Just, yeah, it needs well, to be another podcast. What. So how about this? So for the next time you guys have me on, I could tell you about a couple of wild homicides I was involved in. I got wild morgue stories, like going to the morgue, and and that some sounds of that, sounds, that sounds amazing. We're definitely going to do that because my, my daughter was like, "I want to meet this guy. This guy sounds cool." And I'm like, "Well, I don't know." So you know, we definitely need to have you on again. Yeah, hundred percent, one hundred percent. Have a sit in with you. Have a uh, sit in with maybe. You. Maybe maybe next maybe next time I might have her sit next to me because literally she'd love it. She's absolutely mad keen on real crime, true crime, and anything on Netflix, anything on Amazon. That's what she she just loves it. She eats it up. So yeah, maybe next time I might get to sit in with us. There's there's no maybe. Amy, when you listen to this back, <laughs> when you listen to this back, we'll get you on. Regardless yeah, what your dad says, yeah, yeah. I said it's okay. As long as I'm alive, I'll come on this show. You guys are great. It's a professionally run podcast. And, you know, like, again, I like the English. I always have. I love your humor. <laughs> oh, we, we appreciate that. So before we go, before we go, I just need to give a quick shout out to our sponsors, which are, of course, Ollie's Snacks. So if you want your olives, your nuts, your pretzels, or your chocolate-covered pretzels, get along to ollies-ollies.com. And if you're based in the U.K., Use the promo code TALLBOYRADIO, all one word, all capitals, to get 20% off your order. And there you go. We've trailed it there. We'll get Vic on again. We'll hear some more of his stories. And, you know, let's face it, you know, we've just, I suspect, dipped our toe into the water there and heard some of the stories tonight. And they've been fantastic. Cannot tell you how much we've enjoyed and appreciated you being yeah. on and sharing them with us. It's, it's it been, it, yeah, it's been fantastic. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's cool. It's cool. We're, we're just sit, literally saying, Gaza, how much we've enjoyed it, haven't we? I can see, I can see on Gaza's face, you've enjoyed it, haven't you, dude? Oh, like, I, yeah. I mean, I, for, for me, the podcast is just about meeting different people, hearing their different stories, and and some 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 of the guests we have on are, are great. Some, you know, you you think, okay, we won't have them on again. This has been an absolute blast, and I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed listening to some of these stories. I, I, I could, you know, yeah, I can't wait to have you on again and we just delve a little bit deeper into the, the minutiae of maybe the NYPD and <laughs> I just I just love the whole, yeah, it, it, I've loved it, loved the episode, yeah, I haven't laughed so much <laughs> really on a podcast but for ages, so yeah, really, really, really appreciate you coming on Vic, sparing your time, good looking your softball uh, a little bit later on, fingers crossed it goes well for you, so yeah, we're, we're rooting for you. Absolutely, absolutely, Thanks. Andy's good. And he's going to be good. He missed that one. So do you want to say good, your goodbyes to our listeners then, Vic? My friends across the pound, thank you for listening so much. And check out my books. Go on Amazon. Look up Vic Ferrari in the book section. I got six books. They make great $10 stocking stuffers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Solid advice. And if you aren't picking up one of those for Christmas, if you're one of our listeners, gee whiz, what are you doing? Gaza? Uh, yeah, just go back to what I said like a minute a minute ago. Love the episode. Uh, love having guests on. I can't wait for the for the next time. Uh, really, really, really enjoy this episode. And uh, yeah, let's let's look forward to doing it again. Absolutely, absolutely. And I just leave it to me to sign off and say thank you, thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Vic, for joining us and sharing your stories with us. So guys, I know you're going to be looking forward to the next episode that we have with Vic Ferrari on just as much as we are. So take care.